0: Good morning. Good morning. Um, open your Bibles to Isaiah 53, if you like. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, we will get you one. Can't believe Elijah cut Michael off. I thought he was going to go on a solo. Ended did the song. Raise your hand if you want more cello. <laughs> So, Michael, for those of you that are new or newish, uh, Michael and his family are a beloved family of uh, RTC. They've, they went to our church for a long time. Then he got mad at me and at one of my sermons and left. Uh, no, uh, they moved to Wisconsin, and it's good to have them back for a day or two. Isaiah 53, uh, verses 4 through 6. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series on the doctrines of grace, uh, Calvinism, whatever you like to call it. And today we'll be in limited atonement, definite atonement's probably better. Particular redemption is really good too. Doesn't matter what you call it. I don't really care. Um, so Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6. Yet yeah, he himself bore our sickness and carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punished for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us. All. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your people. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to gather with your saints and worship you and receive grace. And as we receive, Lord, we give you glory because we are declaring our utter, absolute, total dependence upon you for salvation, uh, for this life. Um, and we're confident as we ground our lives and our little church here on the authority and sufficiency of your word, that all that needs to take place in our life is going to take place by the power of your Holy Spirit through the power of your word, and pray that that would just happen today, and we know it will. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, this is more of a reminder to myself than it maybe is to you, uh, because these doctrines can get tricky where you can get in defense mode real quick, and there's there's so many different ways you can do the doctrines of grace. Um, and so I just want to remind, again, you guys, and probably more importantly myself before I get started on the sermon, that the primary reason for these sermons is to give the people of God assurance of salvation, all right? And I'm trying my best to, again, not that there won't be apologetics uh, weaved in and, and dotted in throughout. Actually, I'm probably going to start there briefly. I'm trying to present these doctrines um, as the doctrines of grace, as, as they are they're beautiful. Um, because I feel like, first off, number one, these doctrines are never really taught from the pulpit, even in Calvinistic uh, reformed churches. Um, and if they are, barely. If they are, they may come up in a sermon through a book of the Bible. And so, you get to, well, you start Ephesians, and you, you, so you touch on it there. You get to Ephesians 2, and you, you kind of got to let the cat out of the bag um, if you're a reformed, a reformedish, or Calvinistic in your doctrine of soteriology. Um, but even when they are presented, uh, maybe in the same fashion that I'm presenting them, as in like tulip, uh, they're presented primarily in defense mode and to equip the saints to be able to know why they believe, and know what they believe, why they believe it, and to be able to argue with Armenians um, on Facebook comment section. Um, I, I, I'm kidding, but there's a group of people that sometimes I feel like are constantly being left out from the proclamation and preaching from the pulpit, and that is that it's the church. Um, primarily we are, we have grown up in uh, American Christianity um, where the sermons are for everybody and anybody except for the, the, the actual church. And I think this is true even in these doctrines. We, we're, we're giving them to convince people. We know one or two or three people in the church that don't believe these doctrines, or 40% of them don't believe them. And so we, we get there. And then again, if we're even thinking about the church, we're just giving them the information. But I, I want to look at these. My, my goal in these presenting Calvinism, the doctrines of grace, is, what what now? Like, I believe these things, I know the vast majority of you believe these things, but, but now what? How do we think about them? What, what do we do with them? What, what are they for? And my focus through this uh, series is, to, uh, is is ultimately to highlight the fact that they actually are the doctrines of grace, and called that for a reason, to highlight the grace of God, the free, sovereign grace of God in the believer's life, and that we would walk away blessed edified, encouraged, built up, and assured, most importantly, of our salvation, knowing that our salvation is a gift to us, that we didn't save ourselves, we played no part in saving ourselves, that salvation is outside of ourselves, we are not the Savior, we are not 1% of the Savior, Jesus Christ is the Savior through and through, and then knowing that then should assure God's people that if salvation wasn't theirs in the first place, then. They're, they're, it's, it's God's and God has it and we can all leap with joy today and go on about our business assured of our salvation, regardless of the difficulties that we're having and circumstances that we might have in this life, whether it be just circumstances, whether it be dealing with sin and temptation, because that's usually when we get unassured is when Rainy yells at her husband. Sorry, Rainy, I was looking through your windows. I saw you yell at your husband this week. Are you even assured you yelled at your husband? And that's what we do. We do that to people and people do that to us. But most importantly, we do it to ourselves constantly. Even the people that believe in the free, sovereign grace of God. Even the people that believe in the doctrines of grace. Even the people that have Galatians memorized and know that it's not about works. Even the people that hold to the five solas. It's all, all this is interconnected. Is we though still default position can be when we struggle with sin and temptation. And when we fall, we can doubt. Doubt and we will even even come to sermons that are on assurance of faith. Guys, what I'm about to say is so true. I don't know if you've experienced, but I experienced it recently. You got to hear this sermon. It's beautiful. It's on assurance of faith. I go and listen to it. Yeah, it was all about assurance of faith, and you know how you get assurance of faith? By examining yourself and by making sure that you're doing these things, and primarily the, 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 the capstone was that you're getting up early in the morning and reading the Bible. That's how you can know you're actually a Christian. And I just was, I was blown away and realized that this is what the church actually hears when it even comes to something so beautiful as a sermon or a sermon series on assurance of faith that we're pointed to ourselves. It's incredible. It's incredible that we would then not even see that that is not right, that we would hear a sermon like that and then actually go tell people how awesome the sermon was about assurance. And, and not realize, oh my gosh, I just heard a sermon on assurance and all I was pointed to was myself and what I'm doing or what I'm not doing and how often I'm doing it or how often I'm not doing it. And I just, I feel sorry for God's people, but I declare to you that your elders here will we'll never preach a sermon like that. We will never point you ultimately to yourself. Now, you can have, you can get assurance, right, from the transformation that's taking place in your life, right? I mean, especially when you look back on the last five or ten years, you can be like, oh, I'm kinder, hopefully. I- I'm gentler. I'm more patient. Or, hey, this time when I was, normally would freak out about this situation, I mean, I still freaked out about it, but I didn't freak out about it the way I normally freak out about it. I'm growing. Cool. You're saved, and you're being sanctified. Yes, you can have assurance in that. But, man, that cannot be the ultimate grounds of your assurance because then you will just be tossed to and fro by your good days and your bad days. And I don't want that for the people of God, and I know God does not want that for the people of God. And the doctrines of grace, they do a lot of things, and maybe I shouldn't even say this, but primarily what they do, because they highlight the grace of God, is they assure God's people. And so today, definite atonement, limited atonement, particular redemption, whatever you want to call it. Well, I'll probably just refer to it as limited atonement, because that's what everybody knows it to be. Um, It's what it's been called. It is primarily to assure That's the whole point of this sermon, is to assure God's people, okay? And so to to define limited atonement, again, it's pretty easy to define. It defines itself, all right? And I like this phrase, and I don't even know who I heard this from. I think I heard it from, who's the pastor that's, I think, from Ireland, but he's in Cleveland. I've actually met him before. Who? Alistair Beck. Met him in an elevator, just me and him. It was great. What'd you say? Scotland's All right, so you're getting corrected. I love that guy. But he has, I think he, the first time I heard someone say it, and this is what limited atonement is, Jesus took names to the cross. Jesus actually died for people. Not just people, whoever, I'm throwing jello at a freaking wall and see if it sticks. No, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus actually died for specific people. And it follows, all right, from the fact which we established last week, that the elect have been chosen before the foundations of the world, that there's a group of people, uh, sinners, but pulled out, God's mercy, all right? Chosen before the foundations of the world. See how these, these doctrines flow, all right? It follows from that, that when Jesus actually does come to save his people, that he would what? Save those people, right? The, the ones who we already declared and believe that Jesus actually chose before the foundations of the world if he chose them before the foundations of the world then he knows them it would make no sense that he then and goes dies for a bunch of people that he never even chose in the first place and because mark my words there no drop of blood was wasted on the cross not not one and so that's what limited atonement is, is that he dies. For it, it's, it's limiting the atonement as far as people are concerned. The atonement, there is no limit. The, the, the atonement is massive and beautiful and infinite, but it's for a specific people. It isn't for everybody. And again, if Jesus atoned all right, for the sins of everyone, which again, this is popular belief now, but it, this is not the belief of the church historically, primarily. Vast majority, vast, vast, vast majority, have not believed this, and you can look throughout the history of the church, look at the confessions especially, and you will clearly see, actually 100% of the original Baptist churches that started the Southern Baptist Convention were Calvinistic in their soteriology. Now, I would say probably 75 to 80% of them are Armenian in their soteriology, and they call themselves traditionists to avoid the term Arminian, but they're Armenian anyway, regardless, okay? And it's tradition, it's funny, because that tradition kind of gives you, like, this is the historic view, which it's actually not. So it's, I think it's not nice that they chose that word, actually. So if Jesus atoned for the sins of everybody, all right, then trust me and trust your own thinking, then everyone would be saved. Could you imagine Jesus? I mean, look, look, if he came and atoned for everybody, then it actually wasn't a very good plan. Because we already know that the, although there's going to be multitudes upon multitudes and, and not even be able to count how many people over the history of the world are, have, been, or have been and are going to be saved and we're going to be in eternity in heaven, think about the multitudes that are not far greater, I, I think. We could all agree upon that. And so actually, if he came to die for the sins of the world and since that world meaning everybody, then it, it was actually a pretty utter failure when you think about it. But we know God... We started the whole doctrine of grace on the doctrine of God to be sovereign and to be all-powerful and all-knowing and majestic and infinite and eternal. Does that sound like a God that comes up with a plan that looks like an utter failure? No, that sounds like a God who whatever his plan is is perfect One, I, to, a, to a person when it comes to salvation, that no person that Jesus died for is ever going to not be saved. And the question again, this I'm just getting some apologetics out. They may not even flow. I don't really care. I'm just getting them out there, okay? This is like, blah, I'm just regurgitating stuff. Did God make salvation merely possible? That's the question when we think about the atonement. Did he just make it possible? And if he just made it merely possible, then it would be possible that no one would get saved, right? Right? Yes, right. If he merely made salvation possible, then although we know that people are saved, we would have to conclude that there could have been a scenario where no one got saved. Now, does that sound like the God that we know? Does that sound like an all powerful, all loving, all all majestic, good, sovereign, eternal, infinite, all knowing God? It doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like the God of the Bible whatsoever. Okay, that he would make salvation merely possible or even run the risk that, that that then no one would actually, not even one person could ever get saved. Or are people only, okay, are are people only potentially saved? That's that's asking the same question. Is that what we think of when we think of the cross? No. Did God secure the salvation of his people or not? The people that he chose before the foundations of the world. And we would say, I would think we would say, these are almost rhetorical questions, but once you answer with an affirmative or yes or affirmative no, you you then you kind of see where this would kind of recalibrate, recalibrate your thinking on the doctrine of salvation. Now, God is sovereign. Man is radically depraved. God chose some before the foundation of the world to be saved. God sends his son to save the ones he has chosen. The death of Jesus on the cross actually accomplished salvation and redemption for his people. This is what this is where limited atonement leads us to these conclusions that God saves people actually and honestly and I'm not trying to be a jerk, but the, the, any other view that you're, you can't you actually can't say this. I mean you could say it and you could even think that you believe it but you don't know what you're saying because it logically doesn't make sense. You can't say God saves people. like he actually saves people if you have any other view of the atonement. look what J. I. Packer says Christ, did not win a hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers, a mere possibility of salvation for any who might possibly believe, but a real salvation for his own chosen people. Praise the Lord that it's not up to us to try to, like, God does every single thing he can do, creates the world, and he sends his son, and his son lives a perfect life for the people. His son dies a death that the people should have died. The son rises again. The son then ascends to the right hand of the father, and there's the son. And he's, he's sitting back just, he's like the Kermit, you know, the Kermit one, or he's, you know, nervous Kermit. You ever done that gift? It's one of my favorites. He's like nervous Kermit, hoping somebody believes. No, that doesn't sound like our God. It's not our God. Well, he actually dies for specific people. Now, I'm going to read something real long. I don't normally do this. i going to anyway. So if this is probably the greatest, smallest treatment on Calvinism, then it does highlight definite atonement that I have ever read. And it's the introduction essay on the death of death and the death of Christ by Packer. The, the book is by John Owen. Um, but you can get this thing. I got it through a book when I ordered Banner or Truth Book. They just sent it to me for some reason. Um, I'm glad they did because I like hard copies. But if like you go, if you just Google J.I. Packer introduction to John Owen, you will find this. It'll it'll definitely be on monergism.com, which is a really good website. There is no better treatment of Calvinism and limited atonement. And there is no that I have ever read. And I've read massive books on it. Massive books on the doctrines of grace. And this still is probably the best, but he has a quote from Spurgeon that I'm going to read, and then we'll start my sermon. So note note that, okay? Sermon hasn't even started, but... Okay, listen to Spurgeon, all right? Remember, Spurgeon's a whippersnapper, and we love him for it. We are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men, or all men would be saved. Now, our reply to this is that, on the other hand, our opponents limit it we don't limit the atonement. The Armenians say Christ died for all men. Well, ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? And they will say no, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? And they have to say no. They are obliged to admit this if they are consistent. They say no, Christ has died that any man may be saved if and then follow certain conditions of salvation that man has to do. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why, it's you. You say that Christ did not die so as infallibly to secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon when you say we limit Christ's death. We say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do it. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. Man, you can't even talk like that today without upsetting somebody, but I just talk like that, and I agree 100% with what he just said. See the powerfulness. I mean, it's like we're not living the atonement as far as in that way. I mean, we are saying that God actually saves people. Now, what does the Bible say? All right. I have more verses than I've ever had in any sermon of my life probably today, and we're just going to run through them. Listen to Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for what? Anybody know? Many. Not all though, right? Many. Okay, so right off the bat, we have a limited atonement. He didn't come to save everybody. He came to save many. Uh, Matthew 11, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Okay, that's not even talking about the atonement, but we're already seeing not everybody's going to be saved. Therefore, if not everybody's going to be saved, then the atonement is already limited. All right, John 17, this is one of those verses that I don't, when, my, when I started believing the doctrines of grace, I was like, how, how did I ever read this verse and not stop? But it's what we do. I pray for them. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. And he's praying for his disciples. And he says, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. I'm praying for them, but I'm not praying for the world. I'm only praying for those you have given me. So we have this already. er, Salvation is limited. And if salvation is limited, then the atonement is certainly limited. And Jesus not praying for the world is fascinating to think about. But it is what it is. Matthew 1. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people, From their sins. He will save his people. Now start thinking about it. Jesus taking names to the cross. Jesus, now now, listen, salvation is personal. It's never private, but it's it is personal, but it's also, but we highlight the corporate nature of, of everything, right? But it's still personal. What's personal is also involves individuals. So just start thinking right now as we go through, walk through these verses jesus chose you before the foundations of the world you that's how much he loves you you not just a blob of people no he he chose you whoever you are he chose you and then think about when the son comes right out of the gate in matthew chapter one she will give birth to a son and you are to name him jesus because he will save his people who are his people does he know who his people are he absolutely knows who his people are he's known who they are before the very foundations of the world before they were even ever created he's known who his people are john 10 i am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep i am the good shepherd i know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and i know the father I lay down my life for the sheep. So it's not just the sheep, any sheep, random sheep, it's my sheep. He lays down his life for his sheep because he just says he knows who they are. So it's not just sheep randomly. I lay down my life for the sheep, but I have other sheep. See, he knows, he knows who the sheep are and he knows where they're at. Speaking of the Gentiles, he says, I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice because there's only one flock and one shepherd. Jesus knows the sh- who the sheep are. He knows who his people are. He came to save his people. He came to die for his people. John 10, but you don't believe me to people that don't believe him. Listen, I'm fasting. You don't believe me because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow. they follow me. Notice, he knows them over and over again he knows who they are now think about it it would make zero sense for them him to go die for a bunch of people that he knows are not their sheep and again whether it makes sense or not the bible that's this is just what the bible declares everyone in john 6 the father gives me will come to me the father gives me he knows who they are he's come for the people that the father has given him not the world, not all the world. And I know what you might be thinking, world, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I mean, I can answer those questions. I will real quickly. But if you want further in-depth stuff, talk to Paymore, me, Troy, raise your hand if you can answer. World, if, if you look up the words all and world in the Bible, you probably are never going to find one instant where all and world meet every single person. Just from based on the context. You know, you hear this thing like all is all. No, all is not all. You never define a word by the very word itself, ever. Think about it. Do, do, do it in any other thing. Sky's blue. What's blue? Blue. Makes, that makes absolutely no sense. You got to describe blue. And so all is all is dumb. Don't ever say that. D- don't ever say it. It's just, you look dumb. Don't do it. All right? Because it never means that in the Bible. It never means, all never means every single person in the world. You might be able to find one instant, maybe, but probably not even that. And world never means Every single person in the world, you might be able to find one or two uh, times where it actually means that, but that's it. But you're not all through John, I challenge you to find in John, which is where God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved. I challenge you to read the context of every time the word John uses the word world in John and first John, that it means every single person in the world. It doesn't. World either means the world system, like the darkness and the sin and the evil of the world system, or it means people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And it's that, there you go. So we can talk later about that. All right, moving on. Uh, Where was I at? Okay. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. Well, what's part, what goes on in between the giving and raising up on the last day? The coming and the living and the dying. And so he lives for people specific, rainy. He lived for you, for your righteousness. And he also died for you. And he also rose again for you. And he also ascended to the right hand of the father for you. And he's actually at the right hand of the father right now, interceding for you. It's all, it's all connected and it's also beautiful and it's also personal even though it also is corporate because it's us 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 and that's now what we're going to move into all right because here's what I want us to notice notice we're going to notice together this the tone of scripture together. Now these verses are not proving or disproving limited atonement. but once we see that the Bible uh, absolutely declares limited atonement, absolutely declares that God chose specific people and then came and died for those specific people. Now, here's the beauty of it. It rearranges and renews our mind into seeing verses that are, are good to us, and we know they're good, but we just, get to, just oh, we get to see them afresh when we think about the fact that Jesus died for, for me and he died for for you, and he died for, for us. And we start to see then, oh, actually, although these verses in and of themselves don't prove or disprove this doctrine of limited atonement, man, once I see limited atonement and believe it, then these words, although they don't change meaning, they mean more. And, and it's a beautiful thing. And this is actually the whole point of the sermon that I wanted to get to. Just The scriptures have a personal tone to them when it comes to salvation, not a random tone. Listen, here we go, Galatians. Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Not because I somehow... Turned the light bulb on and believed in my own power and strength. No, but because the son came and lived for me and died for me and rose for me. Gave his life for me, for Paul, and then for us. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church. To himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. He died for people, the church, us. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy. Now, just again, when you start to get past this random stuff, you just it becomes salvation becomes so beautiful, so personal, so intimate, and, and just so just amazing to think about the Son of God dying for you. Uh, First Peter, well, we'll go to Romans, but God proves his own love for us. Again, not a random us for us personally, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. How much more than since we have been justified by his blood, we, us, will we be saved through faith or through him from wrath? For if while we, again, specifically we, not a random we, And we're not just we's because we believe we we are we believe because we were we's from the foundation of the world we're we's because christ died specifically for us if while we were enemies we were reconciled to god through the death of his son then how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree Bore our sins your sins my sins specifically, not randomly, so that having died to sins, we may live for righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. You personally, not you randomly, not you chancely. Luckily, chancely is not a word, but you know what I'm saying. It's, 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 it's specifically, it's, he died for you. He was always going to you were created so that he might die for you. Because again, the gospel of Jesus Christ is plan A. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not plan B. Oops, Adam said, now what? I'll go and I'll die. No, they already knew that was going to happen, the triune God. Everything, everything going according to God's perfect plan. All right. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Christ redeemed us. He redeemed you personally, not randomly. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. See, as dearly loved children from the foundations of the world. Never, you're not He's not going to stop loving you, as we discussed last week, because he never began to love you. He has always loved you. He has loved you with an everlasting love, but not you randomly not the church he didn't love the church in the sense that that the church like whoever it is that you know somehow just believe no that he knows who the church is he he's always known who the church is and he has always loved the church with an everlasting love and then it's declared to us by the sinning and living and the dying and the rising of of his son for god did not appoint us to wrath but to attain us again for god did not appoint us to wrath He didn't. He appointed us to salvation. When? Before the very foundations of the world. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, here we go, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. Encourage one another up with the doctrine of the limited atonement. That Christ actually died for us, and that we were not appointed for wrath, as incredible as it is, and that it's all by God's grace that we weren't appointed to wrath. No, we were appointed to salvation. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Oh, no, I didn't mean to put that verse in there because that just undoes everything I just said. No, this very verse that people use against limited atonement actually proves and shows limited atonement, all right? As we'll, I'll just go through it real quickly. Dear friends, who are the friends? They're the people that that Peter's writing to. Who are they? They're the elect. They're the church, all right? And he says, don't overlook this fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with who? With with you. Who's the you? The people he's writing to. Who are they? They're the elect, they're the church. And what's he say about them? He doesn't want any of you to perish, but to come to repentance. And it, it just proves limited atonement. This again, this isn't some any out there in the just That doesn't have any context. God doesn't want any of his children to perish. And because that's God's decorative will, none of his kids are going to perish. They're all going to be saved. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse us for himself. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. A specific people, a people that he has known forever. Jesus didn't go to the cross thinking, I hope people believe in this and then are saved. Don't know who they are. Don't know who I'm dying for but I'm going to die for a bunch of people and hopefully they believe and then they can have salvation. Doesn't that just sound ridiculous? It is ridiculous. As Jesus goes to the cross, he's thinking of Jeremiah hurt. It's incredible. I'm a complete freaking idiot. And he's thinking of me and my sins and he's going to die. He's going to the cross joyfully the joy that was set before him to go die for whoever you are to put your name out there. i don't even care if you yell your name out it's incredible to think about when you start thinking about all these beautiful truths and beautiful verses that we know but when you start to like think about you like your sin like, like not oh well i'm in how would you get in because i believed oh yeah that was the ah, that was the back door. You got in. You just got in because I, I said, if you believed that you would be saved, dang it. No, no. You were always going to believe because he's chosen you from the foundation of the world. You were always going to believe because when he went, he died for you in order that you might believe. He was foreknown, speaking of Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for a bunch of random people? No, for you. I mean, that's what Peter says. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was revealed in these last times for for you. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even, I mean, notice the us, the us. He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised, and he is also at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. All of it for us. And I know I keep saying it, but not us randomly. We don't decide, think about it, we don't decide who the us is in this plan. Think about how silly it would be for us to think of God's plan of redemption and it all hinging on being successful as we are the ones who decide who the us are. We don't. God does. By his mercy and his grace and his love and his power, he decides. And he decided before the foundations of the world. And so we take all this information, and I could just keep going, all right? I, I maybe even read too many verses. Who cares? We take all this information, and we just think about how secure our salvation is. On your best day, which you probably don't need assurance then, on your worst day, which you do, and everything in between, your salvation has never been more secure than before the foundations of the world. So it's not less secure now just because it's all playing out in real time. God loves you. He has never not loved you. He has always loved you and he shows his love for you. Although you are you and your sin are depraved and radically depraved by choosing you before the foundations of the world and then sending his son in real time to live for you and to die now, for a bunch of people out there where he's not even, Jesus is not even praying for he, died for, he died for you. And that should just give us such assurance. Here's another long quote, which I hate doing, but the, I mean th- these things have been talked about and written about, and these guys are much smarter than me, so I'm stealing their stuff, but I'm not stealing it because I'm giving them your name, Jim Orrick. There's a book called Mirror Calvinism. I highly recommend it, especially to somebody that you want it to be explained in the simplest terms possible. The doctrine of particular redemption, limited atonement, definite atonement, lays the only solid foundation for the believer to enjoy assurance of his salvation. Consider the alternative. If God the Father loves everyone just the same, if Christ died for everyone who has ever lived, and if the Holy Spirit draws everyone equally, then when you get saved, who made the difference? You did, and you can boast about it. The downside of this is that you earn salvation through your merits, you can lose it through your demerits. But if God the Father chose you before the foundation of the world, if Christ died to take away your sins and their penalty, and if the Holy Spirit effectually drew you to Christ, we'll get into that next week, then your salvation rests upon the sovereign work of the omnipotent God, and you are secure forever because of what Christ has already done. How can you know that these blessings are yours? Well, if you've received Christ, you may be assured that all these blessings are yours. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. Think about it. If we are the determining factor in whether or not we are saved or not, based on what we do, then you could see why that people think, I mean, The vast majority of Arminian theology, they believe, teaches, teaches. They don't just suppose that. Well, you do know that people are going to think they could lose their salvation if they're the ones that got it. No, they teach that you can lose your salvation. And so you constantly have people running around wondering if they're even saved. Imagine this. Christ chooses you before the foundations of the world. All right. He comes into the world to live for you, to die for you, to rise for you, to ascend to the right hand of the father, to pray for you and to come back for you someday. And you spend your whole life doubting whether or not you're saved or not. So it's heartbreaking. And I, I it's almost I mean, I hate to say this, but it's almost like a wasted life. But when you are assured that salvation is absolutely of the Lord, and had nothing to do with you and that you even believing was God's grace on you, him regenerating you, birthing you again, making you alive, giving you a new heart to believe in him. If you believe that, which is what the Bible declares from front cover to back cover, then instead of spending your days wondering if you're even saved, or trying to prove to yourself or to your neighbor or to God that you're saved. Instead, you just know that you're saved because of the glorious grace, mercy, and love of God. And then guess what you're free to do the rest of your days? Love people. That's it. You're free to learn how to love people. And what does that look like? Well, that takes a whole lifetime of figuring out and trial and error. But at least, at least you did what God wanted you to do which was to love him and to love people. But we spend so much time staring at our navels, so much time examining our own lives that we don't even, we don't even do anything for anybody. And this frees us up just to be like, ah, salvation is of the Lord. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. I, I don't, yeah, I'm not happy with the temptation or, I'm not happy with the way I talk to my spouse or my kids. Or I'm not happy with the way I dropped an F-bomb in front of coworkers. Or Jim did that. I didn't do that. I'm not happy with that. But I'm not, not saved now because of that. Because salvation is of the Lord. Lord, forgive me. Lord, strengthen me. Lord, help. I mean, just ask the Lord for help instead of asking the Lord or or, or even trying to prove to the Lord that you're, like, worthy of salvation. You're not worthy. Christ is. Because you're in Christ, you've been made worthy. And now you are worthy. And this is, you can come up, yes, I didn't know, I'm I'm over 40. I know, sorry. Listen, this is, it's assurance of salvation. Christ, and here's why, okay? Salvation is of the Lord. Christ is died for you so that you may live christ died for you something we all know we all knew it this morning when we woke up think about it and i mean it think about it jesus christ died for you and whatever then that does in your life let it rain just let it rip let it happen Where's the three points of application? Hey, Christ died for you. Now, now go do what that does in your life. Think about that. And then let that determine what you're going to do the rest of the day. I'll tell you what you're not going to do. You're not going to kick your dog. You're not going to beat your wife. You're not going to say hateful things to your kids. And, and when we do do stuff, not beating wives and stuff, I probably shouldn't have used that analogy. But when we do blow it, we we, we seek repentance. But we can't We cannot focus on the fact that Christ died for us and then go blatantly sin and live in it. We just can't do it. No, we get assurance. Now let's read these verses again. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Let's read it one more time, though, all right? Yet he himself bore my sickness, and he carried my pains, and we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced because of my rebellion, crushed because of my iniquities, punishment for my peace was on him, and I am healed by his wounds. I went astray like a sheep. I have turned to my own way. The Lord has punished him for my iniquity. It's incredible. Praise God for the atonement. Praise God for the fact that he specifically and purposely accomplished salvation on our behalf. On purpose. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. These truths that we know and that you died for us are made ever so brilliant in light of the rest of Scripture's teaching of salvation. Thank you, Lord, for dying for me, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for dying for us. Thank you, Lord, for dying for your church. We praise you and we will praise you for all eternity, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.